And so what we really need are people that can teach themselves that are incredibly good at adapting to environmental conditions. Getting at the core of the person and allowing the Army as an enterprise or an institution to have the time and the space to develop people through increasingly flexible careers. I still am a strong believer that people will choose mission over money, whether that's in the military or somewhere outside. Welcome to The Convergence, the Army's Mad Scientist podcast. I'm Matt Sanispert of the Combat Capabilities Development Command's Armament Center within Army Futures Command, and I'll be joined in just a moment by Luke Shabro, Deputy Director of Mad Scientist. Mad Scientist is a U.S. Army initiative that continually explores the future of warfare, challenges assumptions, and collaborates with academia, industry, and government. You can connect with us through Twitter, at ArmyMadSci, or subscribe to the blog, The Mad Scientist Laboratory, at madsciblog.tradoc.army.mil. We have a special episode today where we'll be talking with a panel of experts about the future of talent and soldiers. The panel consists of Major Delaney Brown of the Army Talent Management Task Force, Captain Jay Long, Innovation Officer for the Joint Special Operations Command, and First Lieutenant Richard Kuzma, Data Scientist and Technical Program Manager for the Army AI Task Force. As always, the views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of the Department of Defense, Department of the Army, Army Futures Command, or Training and Doctrine Command. Let's get started. Okay, so welcome everyone. We've got kind of a special episode today. We've got a panel of three experts instead of just one guest like we normally have. Um, So let's get right into it with our first question. So the three of you have really interesting backgrounds and really you're all at the forefront of exploring what talent and skills we'll be looking for in future soldiers. So if we can go around the proverbial room here and introduce yourselves, um, tell us how'd you get here? What's the crux of your mission right now? Jay, let's start with you. Good morning, everybody. Thanks for having me on. Uh, I'd like to start by saying I'm actually an infantryman by trade. Uh, And wandering into defense innovation was absolutely not something I planned on doing. I was exposed at first at a summer Stanford Graduate School of Business Ignite program, where I said innovation and entrepreneurship. But where that went from something that's nice for Silicon Valley to something that was real for the Department of Defense came when I got to attend Kessel Run's presentation. So it was hosted by the Defense Innovation Board at then the Defense Innovation Unit Experimental, and it talked through the journey that was building the first application. And for me, that was a sign that while it's certainly hard for us to do this within the Department of Defense, it's not only not impossible, but it's actually critical. And so after working with AFWORKS and the Defense Innovation Board, I was able to explore these concepts supporting uh, 3rd Battalion, 2nd and 5th Ranger Regiment, where we took that and adapted it to a Ranger-centric model. Because what we'd identified is there's places like DARPA and a lot of institutional innovators that have these awesome programs and initiatives, but they often focus top-down, whereas there's a litany of user-facing problems that are comparatively simple to solve, but generally neglected because they're too small for DARPA and too big for the average E5 to figure out in the free time. And so we just started pursuing what does this look like to build prototypes and concepts and capabilities based on individual user feedback and that gained traction because there's not only a lot of opportunities to solve problems, but we found a lot of programs across the Department of Defense that existed to support that type of problem solving. Now, an example was then MD5, now Ensign, National Security Innovation Network, whose capacity for impact is constrained by how well tactical units reach out to them with problems. And so by normalizing that relationship, we've been able to do everything from spread internships to more consistent developmental pilots to getting research grants. Um, and then that led to the work I'm doing right now at JSOC, which is focusing primarily on digital transformation, but that same bias towards what is the immediate user pain point and how do we leverage stuff like design thinking and lean startup methodologies to solve for that first. 
and create immediate value while a lot of these institutional efforts continue in the background to shift the macro landscape. Jay, thanks for that. Thanks for coming on today. Um, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention our great relationship with Ensign as well. They've been uh, huge partners for us with our hackathons. Uh, Let's move over to Delaney. Why don't you go next? Matt, thanks for having me this morning. Early in my career, I balked at the established rigid officer development structure. I wanted to serve in the Army, but the system didn't work for me. So I focused on becoming a bureaucratic insurgent. I started keeping track of the structural impediments to the professional life that I wanted. And I really made it my mission to find ways to make the Army work for me, even if the system didn't. And that's what led me to talent management. In concept, talent management is about empowering individuals to manage their own careers and then rewarding success. In execution, that means using things like the Army talent alignment process to connect officers with units based on their talents. It means rolling out assessments to create rich data repositories that the Army can use to inform everything from promotions, selections, to professional military education. And it means testing ways to give officers greater flexibility with their careers. So real quick, to wrap it up, I see my current role, my passion, as revolutionizing the Army's personnel system to ensure it works both for those who have the singular focus on command and those more like myself who have a winding path toward something that's still to be determined. Delaney, thanks for that and thanks for being here. Um, Richard, why don't you round us out? Thanks for having me on. Um, So I started my career with the Office of the Deputy Assistant Secretary of the Navy for Unmanned Systems, focusing really on the policy side of DOD tech and innovation, helping writing the Navy's Unmanned Systems Roadmap. Later, I had a chance to bounce over to Defense Innovation Unit back when it was experimental, uh, working on XView, which is a large open source data set that we created for overhead satellite imagery to really advance the state of deep learning, which showed me a lot of the uh, sides of artificial intelligence that aren't as sexy as the the cool models, but building really that underlying infrastructure that the department is really focusing now on. Um, Later, got the opportunity to work with N1 on algorithmic matching of sailors to jobs, and then I've continued that work in the talent management space now at the Army's AI task force, helping to build machine learning systems uh, to extract skills so we can better put the right soldier in the right job at the right time. I've been lucky enough to partner with a lot of uh, the great efforts that TMTF has been working on. Um, And I've been blessed to really see the policy, the acquisition, and the technical building sides of the DOD tech and innovation space. Thanks, Richard. So the first question was kind of a softball. Tell us about yourselves. The second one's going to be a little bit tougher. It's kind of a broad question. So let's say we were able to give you the exact recruit or exact soldier you want for the future. What are their most important skills and attributes? Um, let's, let's go around the horn again. Jay, why don't you start us off? Absolutely. I'd say the first thing we need to be careful of is not conflating individual technical expertise with mission impact. And by that, I mean, if we're gauging it based on their individual to level, uh, leverage a certain skill set, technology is changing so fast that the critical tech of today may not be critical, say, in five to 10 years. And so what I caution is we're actually more interested in attributes than individual demonstrated skill sets. And so what we really need are people that can teach themselves that are incredibly good at adapting through environmental conditions. And, and the other thing that I'd offer is often, especially in the operational force, what we need innovators to do is less invent something DARPA style than know how to integrate and adapt those technologies and those competencies through organizations that may not be used to working that way. And so accordingly, as we're looking at these future recruits, you need a degree of cultural intelligence and emotional intelligence that is necessary to negotiate with the frozen middle or to challenge norms in a way that gains friends and allies. Because it's hard enough to make the tech work, but if you're also running into cultural barriers, it's going to become that much harder. Um, And so I'd say that we need them to be comfortable with failure. We need them to know how to learn fast. 
need them to be humble enough to integrate a wide variety of viewpoints and inputs into the way that they're solving a problem. And we need them to be willing to continuously learn. And I think if you can solve for some of those attributes, they're going to pick up the tech stacks they need on their own. And they're going to learn the importance of coding and developing software and a litany of other skills that are now critical to mission success. Uh, but it also doesn't bind us to individual solutions because those will and, and have continued to evolve over time. Delaney, what are your thoughts on this? I agree wholeheartedly. And the only thing I would add is the measurable element of that. How do you, uh, as an institution, sort of measure that or account for that? And I think this is where we need to reemphasize or double down on the need for a broad liberal arts education to provide basic data, computer science, statistics, literacy. So you have the foundation to do that sprint later, uh, as Jay was talking about, and really um, build the expertise that's necessary based on your portfolio. And even more, I think the international affairs, economics, written communication is important because of the skill sets uh, that you need to actually do that learning. To have a degree of proficiency across various academic domains is critical and gives you the ability to pick up skills faster in the period of increasing technological change. And the second one that I would add uh, that I don't think Jay captured was the openness to assessments and feedback. I think our Army has been very loath to do objective feedback in anything but an APFT. And so moving into this culture of assessments, having the GRE at the captain's career course or a battery of assessments at ILE, having these commander assessment programs for battalion and brigade command is a pretty significant cultural change. And so I think people that are able to succeed in the Army moving forward will be those who are open to the assessment and almost more importantly, the feedback that comes with it. So some degree of self-awareness or willingness to learn about oneself. And Richard, let's go to you. What are your thoughts? Jay and Delaney have made some great points. Um, I don't believe there's one particular mold that a soldier or a recruit needs to fit. I mean, sure, it'd be nice if everyone had a, a ranger tab, an operational experience, and a PhD, but often those people are unicorns, and they're not going to be able to do the jobs that we, you know, every job within the Army. So instead of trying to make people great at everything, we need to let them pursue their passions, dive deep into whatever they want their specialty to be, um, recognize that they have a particular skill set that's adapted to a particular problem set or a particular mission and help to build some of the systems that can put them toward those problems. Um, well, I agree that there's definitely a need for continued uh, liberal arts talent within the force. I'm still seeing a rather large uh, gap in the technical talent we're going to want for the future versus the technical talent we have. And I think that's uh, because of the problem Jay mentioned is that we, we can't predict the future. We don't know what technologies, what tools we need, but we do need the types of folks that have enough of a foundation to be able to adjust on the fly. So we may not know uh, the world five years from now, but we know it's going to be a technologically enabled one. And real quickly, if I could actually add one footnote to both of those, I think one of the things that both Delaney and Richard hit at is we also need to be willing to change our definition of stuff like international relations. Like at present, you can get through college as an IR major without having to learn to code. I know because I did it at West Point. Uh, but if you're looking at what it means in the future to make really informed decisions, then those IR majors are probably going to have to learn how to scrape stuff like Twitter to back up the research in the same way they're going to have to learn how to go to a library to do the same. And so I, I don't think that we should divorce technology and you know your, your traditional humanities educations. I think we actually need to challenge the definitions of a humanity education to embrace those fundamental skill sets because I, I think those are the new norm. And I'm sure Richard later can talk about the fact that the idea that you can have non-technical organizations anymore uh, is a bit of an antiquated mindset. 
I couldn't agree more. I did a master's degree in international development using machine learning and quantitative approaches. So I 100% concur that this idea of any sort of soft degree um, is really out of date and misses the full breadth of information or data that's available to be used across the breadth of academia. So those were great answers. And that's a perfect segue into our next question that revolves around the Army's increasing focus on emerging technology. And we mentioned robotics, we mentioned AI, autonomy. So in that vein, and and based on what you guys said, are we looking for fundamentally different types of people, or is this just a different flavor? Um, And I don't want Richard to always have to go last. So Richard, why don't you go first this time? I don't think it's a fundamentally different type of individual. You know, someone who is studying civil engineering, you know, decades ago or or physics decades ago, maybe the type of person who is now studying computer science or data science. Um, so there are always people who are going to be pushing the forefronts of technology. We've just been fortunate enough as a world, as a society, and as an organization um, that some of these other disciplines have become more accessible, more commoditized, kind of part of uh, the platforms and infrastructure that we can now access in the day-to-day. Uh, so it's not a fundamental change as much as it's keeping up with what's new. And the, the Army and the military is an organization that has always done that. And so this is just another step in that. Yeah, Jay, what do you think? Yeah, I would argue that you're at, you're looking for, I think, very much the same person if we're talking deep fundamental level. And by that, I mean you want somebody who's a mission-oriented team player that thrives under pressure, learns fast, and wants to be part of something bigger than themselves. It's like the deep core of the individual, I think, is the same. Where there's wild divergence, I think, is the way that we weight intellectual versus physical attributes. Growing up in the infantry, I think your APFT score counted for a lot, and having a ranger tab kind of made up the difference. And what I think we're going to see in the next five to 10 years is that while we expect baseline physical proficiency, there's going to be an increased conversation on like, does this commander know how to integrate data analysis into his decision making? Are they able to leverage a lot of these additional resources? And before we can get to the point where manned and unmanned teaming is a reality, like you need to have maneuver commanders that can identify how to deconstruct their workflows and operational environments in a way that's amenable to data. Uh, and so I think that the core of the person's not going to change. We may have to, to push them a little bit harder to study. Uh, and you may end up seeing potentially less total soldiers and, and the ones that we have potentially more academically inclined. But I think there's obviously going to be a need for like the underlying persona to endure as we continue to, to replace what has historically been a bias towards physical attributes with the expectation that intellectually they're going to be able to roll a little bit harder. I think that you've got the talent in the force now, but in the same way that they know where they need to go in terms of physical performance, we haven't set those same baselines for some of these emerging fields. Delaney? I think the Army people's strategy and talent management really seek to alleviate any tension between these two options by, as Jay and Rich had said, like getting at the core of the person and allowing the Army as an enterprise or an institution to have the time and the space to develop people through increasingly flexible careers, whether we add direct commissioning as a greater component of the active duty force or compo permeability, we allow people to go from active duty to the reserves to the guard and back and forth, or even just private promotion so that you don't have to be in the army 20 years before you have the weight of being a colonel. I think we can get at uh, the cultural elements here in different ways and buy ourselves with flexibility to not have to make a stark distinction between warfighters and intellectual robotics and AI experts and your infantrymen. So I think it's kind of an interesting segue, right? So we're trying to find 
all this talent and we're trying to find these people with um, sometimes intangible skills. So where are we going to find all these talent and skills? Can we get through this right now in, in the future to all this skills that we need to build the future army? Can we do that with conventional recruiting methods, with the accession programs that we have now, or are we going to have to change the model? And we'll go, uh, we'll go with Jay first. So uh, the first thing I'd say is yes, we're going to have to change some models for sure. Um, but I think there's actually a ton of potential, especially to get started in the force that we have. Like one, if, if you're talking about the need to challenge the way that we recruit and assess, like I'd offer that stuff like cyber exempted service and other authorities exist. We haven't figured out, I think as an ecosystem, how best to leverage those. Like the legislation authorization is there, but do we know how to go to Silicon Valley and communicate? the value proposition of military service to an awesome software engineer in a way that makes them feel compelled to come over. Now, another thing that I don't know that we've necessarily done is create enough avenues for really strong junior officer and enlisted talent to get into these positions. Now, on the enlisted side, if you enter and maybe didn't necessarily have access to a university degree or some of the other traditional routes into being an officer, that doesn't preclude you from having critical technical skills. Then in my last unit on the DMZ, I was serving uh, with a bunch of soldiers who were MAVNIs, which is an accession program that the Army had for like international talent. And one of the, the soldiers we had was serving in a supply clerk capacity, but he'd been an aerospace engineer in India. Right? The issue is not the IQ points in the force because we have them. And again, other reference points I'd give is how many guys leave the Army and go to the best business schools in the country or the world. Like It's there. The problem is there's not enough avenues for that talent to rise to the top for us to delineate the impact they can have and then to give them opportunities that will challenge them. Again, a lot of these traditional constructs, if you want to focus on AI, the proved path is you're going to graduate and then you're going to do another base branch for five plus years and then you're going to compete to transition to ORSA and then you might get the opportunity to serve in something like the AI task force. But you're asking these people who are inherently fast movers to wait nearly a decade for the chance to then lend themselves to these kinds of problems. I think Richard's an awesome example of the fact that it doesn't need to be that way, that you can challenge it, um, but it's going to take some time until we build the infrastructure and the opportunities necessary to let the NCO enlisted warrant and officer talent capable of solving these problems rise to the top. And the next thing we have to break is this assumption that billets should drive what we're doing. I know personally, in my case, I tried to get to lethality CFT, but AFC didn't have captain billets right and so then you've got these artificial barriers to entry that mean that you could have talent that could provide immediately relevant value but because institutionally it doesn't fit on a line and block chart we say that it can't be done so i, th I think that the underlying capacity is there i think we just need to do a better job breaking down barriers and affording them the opportunity to to challenge more no that's fantastic delaney what do you think about that i think culture is actually our bigger problem it's not that we can't get people. It's not that we don't have skill sets. It's that culturally we think that you need to have been a company commander before you can be a good strategist or before you can be uh, a nuclear engineer. And we uh, shoot ourselves in the foot when we come up with these sort of false criteria or these quasi qualifications that aren't really necessary. Because I'm hard pressed to find a reason why if you've been running a warehouse for Amazon for the last three years, you shouldn't be able to direct commission as a major into today's army. Or um, even the idea of like, why couldn't we have a foreign officer join the infantry today as a lieutenant colonel and be a battalion commander, bringing that cultural awareness, bringing um, understanding or sensitivities that we say we value. But 
that today they're precluded from showing. And so I think what we really need to drive at here is the cultural change. What is it about being an infantryman or being a combat arms officer that is so central to our force today? And is it something that can be solved as simply as saying cyber is combat arms? You know, would that actually change the mindset of the force or will it go away with the next chief of staff or the next um, sec army kind of getting at these deeper seated beliefs that physical fitness is paramount, that um, a ranger tab is the greatest credential you can have. And so I don't see it as being about the authorities, like the National Defense Authorization Act of 2019 gave the military an incredible number of authorities that we can use to bring people in in different ways and move people around the marketplace, the uh, Army talent alignment process drives a lot of change, a lot of interactions between officers and units that wasn't previously there. But we still have the issue culturally of you can't go apply for bonding assignments until you've done company command. You can't go to grad school until you've completed S3XO time. These are the our own cultural mind uh, obstacles, not any sort of policy or organizational structure that's precluding progress. Yeah, so to, to hone in on the foreign soldiers part, uh, Delaney, you want to bring in the 2020 Marquis de Lafayette, right? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, I mean, why not, right? Like, get them citizenship, get them a clearance. And I don't see why those people should be precluded from contributing to our our officer corps. Yeah, absolutely. So I want to hone in as well on on the culture piece. And I think that's really important. And I want to shift to to Richard for this one to answer first. Um, So I want to know what role you all think culture has to play. Now, I mean, also, not just the culture internally in the Army, but how do we deal with the culture as it meshes from that civilians, from the civilians who are coming in? So those recruits. So do we have to change the culture to get and keep all these future personnel who are, you know, AI workers and data scientists and all the people we want to bring in, or do we need them to adapt to what the army culture is? Richard, do you mind uh, starting off with that one? Sure. Happy to talk about culture. And I think it's a really important issue here, but it's not always so cut and dry as we think. I don't believe it's, you know, you can dye your hair whatever color you want and, you know, smoke weed, which are, I think, you know, low hanging fruits and perhaps have some reality. Um, but I think when you view people now that work in tech uh, in particular, they want to solve hard problems. They want to make a difference. They want to have an impact. And you can absolutely do those things within DOD um, and work on those hard problems. But I don't think DOD does a great job of showing uh, what those problems are, what we're working on, um, and really showing these people the door, the entrance, the on-ramp uh, to get here. Um, I think Jay at uh, JSOC partnering with Ensign has done a, a great job recently of that, and I think he should absolutely talk to that. Um, but in order to have that demand and show people that we want them, uh, we can't just say generally we want more technical people, uh, even though we understand that to be true within DOD. You hire a specific person for a specific job. Um, so like Delaney talked about, we need to you know, change the institution to make it a little bit more malleable on the HR side and say, hey, you, you can go after these tough problems. Uh, a lot of the, even the folks from traditional paths I know really got into DOD tech in a, a very roundabout way uh, instead of going right toward the problem. So I think our culture does need to change, but it's meeting people where they're at, both internally and externally, and not just 
uh, big changes, expecting big changes one way or the other. Now, that's a fantastic answer and gives us a lot of insights. And I really want to shift over to Jay real quick. Um, and that really brings me to kind of a two-part question then. You know, so do you think that being in JSOC, is there a different culture um, in terms of special operations and their acceptance of kind of outside talent and just getting getting these unique individuals and getting them involved early is there a cultural difference there than say the conventional army and then the second part of that is are you looking for something different when it comes to special operations absolutely i'd say the first thing that i've observed that i'm really grateful to see um, is that the special operations community seems to embrace steve jobs approach which is saying that you don't hire the best people to tell them what to do you get the best people there, so they tell you what to do. All the teams I've been on within the soft ecosystem have expected you to show up and to figure out the right answer looks like and to de-risk it on your own and to run like creatively and independent iterative cycles. And then when you're bringing it to the boss, you actually have a plan and a proposal, and you're asking him to approve or deny contingent on the vision that he gave. And so what that speaks to is a much more decentralized form of leadership where you accept that there's going to be risk in the form of maybe it's temporary mistakes or delays, but that's a prerequisite for meaningful learning. And I think the conventional side has a bias towards like a command and control model where soldiers are, are told what to do. And the challenge that I think you have with that is it requires a senior leader to know everything that needs to happen. And where this becomes less effective, I think, is as you migrate into increasingly uncertain environments, the relevance of like rel uh, contextual knowledge from what's going on in the operational space, maybe it's unique technology knowledge that complements that like there's so many unknowns that no one leader can know everything and i think someone that's done a great job of of talking about that is general crystal who was talking about the fact that your role as a senior leader in these environments is less directive and he compared himself to a gardener right your your job is to cultivate talent to make sure that the underlying resources are established to enable those that are already there to thrive and that's a very different paradigm and mindset. And I think the nice part of that is at least the teams, again, that I've been on. When you walk in, you're assessed on what you deliver, vice like what your ORB says or, or any of the traditional credentialing. And that extends to civilian hires on the technology front. Like you're assessed based on the skills you can demonstrate. And then you're trusted, as having gotten to this part of the process, to make a lot of decentralized, independent decisions to communicate your requirements to key leaders and the key leaders in this ecosystem are less responsible for individual command and control than setting compelling visions. And then identifying how to sequence these chess moves and eliminate blockers and to manage this really fast-moving ecosystem. And it's feasible to do it elsewhere. It's just that requires a degree of comfort with risk and uncertainty that I think is inherently not normal in a lot of your conventional formations. And it's not normal, not because it can't be, but because culturally we've, we've presumed that it, it shouldn't be so. And I hope that with the coming of a lot of the, the changes we're already seeing, that, that embracing of uncertainty and ambiguity and risk becomes far more normal. No, that, that makes a ton of sense. And so we've, we've talked about kind of culture internally and other, other roadblocks that we have to deal with in terms of, okay, we have the talent even potentially in the force, but we can't figure out, you know, where, how to get people on board quicker, how to put them in positions that allow them to actually empower that talent. Um, but I want to talk more about what do you think are some external roadblocks? What are some things that you all think 
could get in the way of us getting the best people we can get? Is it, is it competition from foreign nations? Is it competition from industry? What, what are the things that are getting in our way? Let's go ahead and start with Delaney, if that's all right. I do believe that the military is in a war for talent. As we move into multi-domain operations and leave this sort of exclusive land of ground combat, that we are increasingly uh, looking for the same skill sets, or at least similar and complementary skill sets to other aspects of the American economy. So in that regard, I agree, especially if you start thinking about uh, diversity or inclusion, like how do we recruit uh, more women with STEM skill sets, or how do we recruit more African-Americans or Hispanics with these skill sets? I absolutely would agree. I don't know that I think the right answer, though, is to see it as a zero-sum game. I really do think that permeability, the ability to move in and out of the military in three, five-year stints, um, I think blended retirement will help change this paradigm where we don't have majors sticking around filling spots because they're just trying to get to 20 years. Instead, they move out to a civilian sector. They've gotten what they needed out of the military and they go to a different job. They create spaces for direct commissionees to come in and solve that hard problem or to get after something using the experiences that they've gained already in their careers. Uh, the ability to opt in or opt out, kind of changing these timelines for promotion will create more space for somebody to stay as an extended captain or as an extended major while they gain grad school or um, refine their knowledge and skills uh, before moving into the civilian economy. And so rather than kind of seeing it as a zero sum with the civilian sector, what I would see is the military needs to continue to increase the flexibility and allow the people who are attracted or who even just want to look back when they're 60 and say, hey, I was in the army, not for 30 years, not for 20 years, but for three, like I did a thing, I contributed to this thing, I served my country, is a huge leverage point, or at least um, a marketing advantage that we have, that we can cultivate as long as we can help ourselves culturally move from a 20 year career, and into this idea of service uh, uh, that fits specific knowledge, skills, behaviors, and leverages them temporarily. Richard, any thoughts? Yeah, on Roblox, I still am a strong believer that people will choose mission over money, whether that's in the military or somewhere outside. Um, but in order to you know, go after whatever mission they want to do, they need the tools to accomplish that mission. Um, and modern warfare requires these modern tools. We just can't expect technical talent and innovators to leave the civilian sector and come into the military and not be able to use the same programming languages, databases, computational power. So I think the military has done a great job recently of pushing a lot more uh, human capital development efforts. We've been working on the recruiting. Uh, there's a lot of great authorities happening in the NDAA to change the HR system. But if we don't give people the tools to uh, you know, do what they wanna do and to attack these tough problems, I think that's uh, something that will hamstring us. No, I think that's such a fantastic point about um, the need for them to be able to use the same kind of tools uh, or even the same exact tools that they're using out in industry. Jay, any thoughts? Yeah, absolutely. I, and I've written on this in the past, and I think at a deep level, whenever we say we're losing talent to Amazon, it's the equivalent of hitting an easy button, right? It's this thing that we can't change and we can wail against. And I'd offer it's potentially not the most honest answer. And I say that because if you interview a lot of people who have gotten out, Rarely do they say it's the $30,000 that did it. Often it's the, the illogical ecosystem that we put them in or the frustration with bureaucracy or the inability to have an impact. You know, Richard's talking about talent that wants to solve problems and then we don't give them tools. 
I think in a similar way that you've got people that can solve wonderful problems, but you don't give them career opportunities that make sense. And then you're trying to fit these people who are inherently not designed for a square peg, square hole environment into something that works. And often the only decision they're given is like either comply or leave, right? And so that like there's only one logical choice in that environment. And for context, like I left active duty because of that. And then I became an active duty reservist because that's the kind of bureaucratic jujitsu you need to pull to focus in the space as an infantryman. Um, and I just don't think that, that blaming it on external factors is the whole story. I think in the same way that Napoleon said, amateurs talk tactics, masters talk logistics, there's an equivalent version where the masters in the space, the key leaders we need are going to be thinking about ecosystems as a whole. They're going to be thinking about how do we build talent development pipelines? How do we evolve these capabilities? How do we continue to recruit and solve these problems? And how do we make sure that we're not unnecessarily constrained? And then on the other side of that, they're going to generate compelling visions that empower these innovators to move out against. Like if, as you become more agile as an organization, leaders that can not only understand individual technologies, but how they weave together into really compelling visions of the future warfighting capabilities we need to have are those that can then steer all these different efforts together. And absent that, I think it's really easy for individual contributors who are isolated in little innovation archipelagos to assume that there's no world in which they can collaborate and come together and move out towards something. And then they run into that wall where it's either comply or leave, and, and so they leave. So I think if we can release the reins a little bit, still pointing them towards a compelling vision that aligns up to strategic requirements and empower them with every resource they need to be successful, we do a lot of good. Those are fantastic insights as well. So we don't, we don't get to let everybody off the hook and just blame Amazon for stealing all our talent. Um, I, I want to transition a little. So this podcast is all about the future. We're trying to explore the future operational environment. And right now, you have to imagine, if you're talking to future soldiers and Army civilians and these other enablers that we want for this future force, some of them are in high school or middle school or like Matt and I's kids in elementary school right now, what advice would you give them? Why, why would they want to be a part of this future force? Delaney, you're in the talent management task force, so I'm going to shotgun you and you get to go first. Uh, makes me wish that I was a part of marketing command. Uh, I think what I would tell, now my son's a year old, so maybe not quite yet, but what I would tell my kids is that there's a lot of ways to serve your country, and one of the greatest ones is in uniform. That fundamentally, leadership, leading uh, soldiers is a great thing, and it can come with some of the most complex, complicated problems that I've ever been afforded uh, the opportunity to see or to solve, and that that in itself is its reward, that regardless of kind of all the free degrees that have come along with getting to serve, all the opportunities, um, that first and foremost, the ability to serve your country in uniform will remain the Army's premier marketing advantage. Jay, what do you think? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, echoing everything Delaney said, serving in uniform is a privilege. And something I think that's potentially less discussed is the DOD is uniquely positioned to be the official first mover in a lot of government modernization efforts. Like the DOD has got a $700 billion budget. And so what of that means they can experiment with digital transformation and technologies in ways that like maybe the Department of the Interior can't. And so when you're serving in uniform, not only are you solving problems for the soldiers that you're serving with, but if you can norm best practices and scale technologies and find ways to address issues, then you've found a way to transform a lot more than just your unit. 
And I think that allows you to serve in a way that scales uh, that other opportunities may not. Uh, and I think that's important and it's something that's not often discussed, but we've seen that a little bit within the recent COVID-19 response. Like one of the challenges that a lot, a lot of the, the key leaders have had is everything from understanding growth and forecasting for case counts, where is equipment or medical supplies. And those problems are analogous to things that the military is going after now with some of the stuff out of the Army Software Factory in Austin and some of the work that Richard is doing at the AI Task Force. And as those become solved problems, we can scale those. And you can do a lot of really awesome things for helping the entirety of the nation learn to tackle these problems. Um, and so I think in the same way that it was DARPA who led the internet, there's a litany of other more tactical opportunities to improve the way that the American people are served by the American government. Uh, and I don't know that you can do that in other forms of service. And so in addition, obviously, to serving as an instrument, which is something that I love, and serving in uniform, I, th I think the chance to lead change in a very tangible way is super compelling. Thank you, Jay. And, and Richard, you have a different path into this space and a different perspective. So what, what is your uh, opinion on this? I think I would tell someone potentially looking at the DOD that, that, you know, DOD has a lot of technology problems, but that also means we're in a place where we're searching for a lot of solutions and you have the ability to make an impact with what you do, even at a relatively junior level. So while you may not build the next LinkedIn, LinkedIn in the Bay Area, you know, hundreds of thousands of members of the military still change jobs every year. If you can build something that better puts them uh, into the right place and improves their lives and improves satisfaction, you can make a difference. So I think the ability impacts people's lives uh, to have that outsized impact and to carve a niche um, is great. And there's really no better time because senior leaders agree that, that we need to make this technological transformation. Uh, and from all sides, we're really looking to empower the right people with the right skills, no matter what your rank is, where you're from or what organization you're in. Guys, thanks. That was a great discussion on a, a more of our broader open-ended questions. We're going to switch right now to what we call the rapid fire questions. Um, and we'll go, we'll go around just as we did before. Um, and these are just short answers to real quick questions here. The first one is what technology or trend keeps you up at night? Jay? Yeah. So for this one, I'd list the ones that actually have kept me up at night. Uh, and that is non-modernized systems that we're asking people in our talks and our jocks and, and Ford operating centers to use that should have been automated about 10 years ago. While I think it's really attractive to focus on AI and ML and a litany of other emerging technologies, I think it's important that we recognize the force right now is dealing with email servers that won't turn on or all these disconnected programs that don't sync together to give us like a holistic understanding of the data ecosystem we're dealing with. And so right now, I'm sure somewhere there's somebody that hasn't slept for a day and a half because they don't have the technology they need to solve critical problems. Uh, and, and my vision to close that is I would love as the Army invests in modernization to build a positive version of the New York City debt clock where every time we get something right and every time we automate a process, we talk about hours saved um, because I think that's worth getting after. And, and I think to, to focus on all these Horizon 3 technologies while missing our continual tie to legacy solutions that don't actually empower the warfighter, I think misses the, the threat that keeps most of us up at night right now. Yeah, no, that's, that's great insights, great idea. Uh, Delaney, how about you? The idea that we have asked soldiers to fill out, I don't know, hundreds of thousands, millions of surveys, and we don't have any of the architecture in place to collate or aggregate that data into usable, data-rich environments, drives me bonkers. Like Every time I get a survey from the health agency or I get one from HRC, 
just knowing that we don't actually have the agreements behind those to turn those into intelligible, actionable and um, information keeps me up at night. But the flip side of that, or what I take solace in, is that if we can't make sense of it, it also can't be weaponized. I'm not comfortable with the level of security or privacy that uh, safeguards that we've instituted over data in the military. Like, I don't know how many times I've gotten a letter from OPM saying that my social security number was stolen or whatever database has been hacked. And so, the you know, one side is that we're not the data-rich organization, but the flip side is a data-rich organization can easily be targeted or uh, exploited for adversarial gain. Yeah, that's a great way to look at it. Um, you know, on the one hand, we have all, have all this data, but we can't do anything with it. And the other side is hopefully nobody else can too. Um, Richard, what keeps you up at night? I think Delaney makes a great point that DOD is data rich and information poor. And I think that comes back to what Jay was talking about in building the right foundations, the right platforms, the right tools, because if we build on top of bad legacy systems, that's going to be a recipe for disaster. So we don't know what the problems are going to be in the future, five years, 10 years, 20, but we know we're going to have to move quickly toward them. We want to make sure we've empowered our people who are uniformed, civilians, contractors uh, to be able to pivot quickly. And we need to have uh, strong architectural underpinnings in order to do that. So that's probably what keeps me up at night. Okay, the next two questions, we're going to get a little personal. And remember, this podcast will go out to hundreds of people. So what's something about you that most people might not know? And Richard, we'll start with you. Sure. So I came from the Naval Academy. Um, I'm from a Navy family. And frankly, I have no business being in the Army right now. Uh, but that's, as Jay mentioned, uh, the unique path to get here is really because a couple of people, both at the AI task force and uh, the assistant secretary of the army for manpower and some folks on the Navy side said, hey, this is a person that we can put toward our problems and was incredibly you know, grateful to get that opportunity. Um, but I would love to see a world where by name requests and you know, movings by flag officers and above aren't the things that get people to the right place. It just happens by default. And Delaney, we'll go to you next. Uh, I joined or I went to West Point to play professional soccer. The intent was never to commission, but rather to become a professional athlete through the world-class athlete program. Um, but as you might have guessed, that didn't quite pan out. And uh, 10 years later or 15 years later, here I am, uh, still on active duty. But the Army did afford me the opportunity to play soccer in India, Germany, France, Brazil, Mississippi. Um, so, yeah, I'm a big fan of it, regardless of uh, missed opportunities. Well, keep the dream alive. I'm 35 and I'm an aspiring baseball player, so we're both going to make it one day. Jay, over to you. Absolutely. Uh, I don't have anything quite as impressive as those two, uh, but I'd say I think what may be helpful for listeners is to know that I have no special skills in this space and this entire journey just started by raising my hand. And I think the value proposition for that is like if you're thinking about these problems or you've ever been frustrated with the system or there's a capability that should exist that doesn't, like you have to be the one that creates that change. And I think it's really easy to, to shrug it off and assume somebody else is going to solve the problem. But at some level, um, across the area right now are hundreds of people that have the capacity to move the needle, if only a little bit. Uh, and so I think what's helpful is to know that this is a space where if you just you know dig your heels in and go for it, as long as you're focused on delivering value, one thing tends to lead to another. Uh, and so I'd say for a lot of people out there who may be waiting for some other entity to solve a problem, roll up your sleeves and get in. Yeah, I think that's a very simple piece of information, but an extremely significant one that often gets overlooked. Um, so thanks for that. All right, finally, our last question of the day of the episode, and we'll start with Delaney on this one. What is your favorite movie? Hands down, Princess Bride. 
it's got everything you could want in life. You've got adventure, you've got love stories, you've got Andre the Giant. The perfect movie. Classic. Richard. Favorite movie is definitely Good Will Hunting. A uh, big Boston fan, but now I want to see Delaney Soccer highlight tapes now that I've discovered she's got a much better skill set than Jay and I. Very good. Jay, round it out. Since Richard stole Good Will Hunting, uh, I'm going to pivot to like the Indiana Jones series, the originals. I think there's a master of storytelling uh, that's impressive, uh, and, and that's something that I've always enjoyed. Absolutely. Great adventure series. Well, guys, I really appreciate everybody coming out. This was a great discussion. Um, talent management and the future of talent management is a huge deal for the Army right now. So I want to thank each of you individually and collectively for this discussion and your insights, and thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for listening to The Convergence. I'd like to thank our guests, Major Delaney Brown of the Army Talent Management Task Force, Captain Jay Long of the Joint Special Operations Command, and First Lieutenant Richard Kuzma of the Army AI Task Force. You can connect with Mad Scientist through Twitter, at ArmyMadSci, and don't forget to subscribe to our blog, The Mad Scientist Laboratory, at madsciblog.tradoc.army.mil.